Well, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge. And I don't know about you, but about maybe a year or so ago, I started to see a request pop up in my Facebook feed. And the post that popped up was an invitation to look at and list the top 10 books that have stayed with you in some way. How many of you saw this? All right, some of you, a few of you, a few of you. Yeah, okay, fair enough, all right. So the instructions usually said something to the effect of don't take too, too long, don't think too hard about it, don't try to like impress everybody by putting down all of the classic works of literature and claiming that you've actually read Ulysses. Just like stick with the ones that you've read and that have affected you in some way. Well, a lot of people responded to this. Millions of people actually worldwide did this on Facebook. So Facebook tasked two of their employees to do research on people's responses. Now remember, this is not scientific research, this is Facebook research, right? <laughs> so Facebook pulled 130,000 uh, status updates in the last two weeks of August of this year. So take a guess at what the number one book was. Shout it out, what do you think? The Bible. Nope, not the Bible, the Bible is number six. Harry Potter, that's right. Worldwide top 10 book, most influential, stayed with people the longest, Harry Potter. To Kill a Mockingbird, number two. Lord of the Rings, number three. The Hobbit, number four. Pride and Prejudice, number five, and so on and so forth. Personally, none of those books made my list, but I actually also didn't do the exercise, so I can't really claim that they made or didn't make my list. I think maybe I was overthinking it. But there are a few books that I would put on that list if I did actually get around to doing it. And one of the books for me that was influential uh, was a part of my growing up experience. I grew up in Northern BC uh, in a farming community. And my dad ran his own business and we never wanted for anything growing up as near as I could recall. But then when I was 13, we moved to the city. We moved to Toronto and suburban Toronto. And I began to encounter people in very different socioeconomic experiences and life stages than me. And I began to travel to places in the world uh, where abject poverty was normal and a suburban part of people's experiences was not normal. And so that there was a discrepancy that began to emerge in my heart between the experiences that I was having and the people that I was meeting and then my own experiences growing up in Canada and the daily existence of my life. And it began to gnaw at me a little bit. And it was about this time that I read a book by a Canadian-born theologian and activist named Ron Sider. And the book was called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Have any of you read that book? Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. All right, so the cover, uh, as an older cover, when I read it, it's since been updated. It sold like almost a half a million copies all around the world now. Uh, since it was published, and what I was reading in those pages deeply affected me and stayed with me. It still stayed with me to this day. And I've been involved in different places in the world. Uh, when I was reading the book, places and sitting with people in the persecuted church, places like Cuba where the church is oppressed, uh, and places I remember sitting with a small group of people 
on a little island in the Baltic Sea in the middle of January in a fire hall. And this group of Christians was trying to figure out how to pool their resources to clothe and feed uh, the people who were poor in their neighborhood. And it began to bring up questions in my life. Questions like, as a Christian, how much is too much for me to own? And I had to wrestle with that. And the questions and the answers that I uncovered were unsettling to me. Oops, not that unsettling to me. And I still wrestle with them today. And maybe you've wrestled with your own version of those questions and have your own experiences that have informed some of those issues in your own life. And today we want to further that conversation because the Bible gives some very important wisdom on what it looks like for us to engage with people in need and how that ought to influence our own lives. And the issue is laid up for us very starkly in the book of James in chapter 5. And this fall here at Jericho Ridge, we've been studying in the book of James in a series called Mirror, Mirror. And the Bible has a lot to say about the realities of economics and injustice and greed and what it means to be rich and how God feels about people who are poor. And if you've been tracking with us in this series, either in person or online, uh, we brushed up against this in James chapter 2 already. And James has asked us to consider, do we treat people differently based on socioeconomic status? But now here in James chapter 5, James is very direct. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't make any excuses. He just goes straight at the issue. And unfortunately, when I read this passage, I am pretty quick to think of ways to exclude myself from the line of fire. I want you to sit with this for a minute before you think of linguistic or theological loopholes or economic labels to soften the impact of this intense admonition. So we're going to read in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And James begins and says, Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are like moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless, and the very wealth that you were counting on is going to eat away at your flesh like fire. This treasure you've accumulated, it will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated their pay, and the wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not or who cannot resist you. Ouch! James is not soft about this issue at all. And in the book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Ron Sider tells a story about an early 20th century author named Upton Sinclair. And Upton Sinclair once gathered together a group of pastors and he read them James chapter one, uh, James chapter five, verses one to six, which we just read. But he didn't tell them it was from the book of James. Instead, he said that it, he attributed the passage 
to a woman named Emma Goldman. And at that time, Emma Goldman was the preeminent anarchist agitator for the Communist Party in the United States. And so he read this passage and said, she had said all of these things about the rich and the poor. And the minister's immediate response was, she should be deported. You see, these pastors were so immersed in their own cultural norms that they didn't recognize this admonition coming from the Bible. Our cultural norms shape us. Ron Sider says, most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching about the deadly danger of possessions. We live in the richest society in the history of the world. We're surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors, and yet we insist on more and more. This is what James is asking us to wrestle with, and why we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook easily. Because it's very easy for us to say, yeah, but I'm not rich. Have you looked at my bank account lately? Like that Bible would never choose that word to describe me. But when it comes to the question of defining who is well, the Bible is actually quite clear. Being rich is about my attitude and about my actions with the things that I have, as opposed to any artificial amount. Being rich is about my attitude and my actions to my possessions that God's entrusted me with, as opposed to an amount. Because if we label it according to an amount, it gets a little bit problematic. Canadian Business Magazine conducted a survey in 2012, and their question was, what net worth would someone have to have in order for you to describe them as rich? Look at the results here for a minute. 32% of people said you would have to have a net worth of between $100,000 and $250,000. 21% said, well, you'd have to have at least a half a million dollars before I would call you rich. 35% said you'd have to have between one and three million. And 12% of people thought you were still not rich if you had $4.9 million as your net worth. You had to have about $5 million in order for them to consider you rich. The floor, in other words, in most of our minds as Canadians, the floor, not the ceiling, the floor for you to consider someone rich in Canada is a net worth of over $100,000. But being rich is not about your net worth. Otherwise, we can just let ourselves off the hook too easily. It's about your attitude and your actions toward the money that you do have and your actions toward other people. Because the attitude and the actions that you take with the things that God has entrusted you with, that's what God will hold you and I accountable for. God is not going to hold you accountable to manage for other people on this pie chart what he's entrusted to them. That's the good news. The bad news is, or the hard news is, that because you and I live in an era and in an area with a high standard of living, we will be held to a high standard of account for how we use what God has entrusted to us and what we do with what we have. The Bible is clear to whom much is given, much is required. So today we're going to wrestle with two of the questions that then come up out of this text that are related to our attitude and our actions about wealth. The first question that the text presents to us that we have to wrestle with is this, and it's been asked throughout history, is it a sin to be rich? 
in and of itself, is it a sin to be rich? Now, in order for us to wrestle with that, we have to recognize that both historically and globally, regardless of what you feel like your net worth is, historically and globally, every single person in this room would be considered phenomenally wealthy. So just by being born into the circumstances that you have been born into, then you would have committed and been guilty of a sin. So I think the Bible is clear on this question, that the answer to the question, is it a sin to be rich, is no, because the Bible doesn't condemn wealth in and of itself. So being rich in and of itself is not sinful, because the Bible says things in Proverbs 8.21, like wealth is a blessing from the Lord. And so that would work at cross purposes with the notion that just because you've been entrusted with additional resources, that somehow that that's sinful in and of itself. But the scriptures are clear that though being, it's not a sin to be rich, the scripture is clear that wealth can be a particularly strong obstacle to discipleship. Wealth can be a particularly strong obstacle to discipleship. Because both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament spend a lot of time warning us about, and yes, condemning wealth. But the condemnation isn't focused on the fact that we have stuff or that a person who is wealthy has stuff. Condemnation and rebuke is focused on the attitude towards the stuff that they have and the actions that are undertaken toward those who are around us. The condemnation isn't, it's not a sin to be rich, but there are particular attitudes and actions that can very easily take root in our lives if we do have resources or are born into a country like Canada that we do need to watch out for. It's a little bit like the warning lights on the dashboard on your car. When they come on, it's an indicator that something is not right and you need to be more aware of it. And so, uh, think, for example, about uh, we, how do we know when we cross the line? How do we know we're living in a danger zone? It would be nice to ask, as we ask the question, how much is too much, to have some indicators or some kind of uh, metrics that we could look at and explore when we know we were getting into trouble. And James does that. He actually lays it out for us in this passage. So let's look together at some of them. So James is saying particular things can go on in our lives that would be an indicator that we are sinning. It's not a sin to be rich, but when some of these things are happening in our lives, we are sinning. The first thing he talks about is hoarding. And by hoarding, he's not talking about like the show on TLC where you have lots of stuff, although that could be true. By hoarding, James is talking about displaying misplaced priorities by confusing needs and wants. And here James is saying, when you get so focused on wealth accumulation, inordinately focused on accumulation, you, you begin to hoard stuff and you demonstrate misplaced priorities and profound confusion between needs and wants. Look at verse five. James says, you have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying every desire that came into your mind. 
And see, here again, he's making a distinction. It's not a sin to have stuff. It's not a sin to have nice stuff. But when you allow your desire for more and more and more to run over time and run amok in your life, you begin to confuse, in a very basic sense, needs and wants. And when that happens, a warning light should be going off on the dashboard of your life, saying, I am in a place where my focus on accumulation and hoarding wealth and resources is not healthy. I'm living in a danger zone. So I'm in danger when I'm hoarding, and when that becomes uh, something that takes root in my life and I can't discern between my needs and my wants anymore. The second danger that James warns us about is in verse 4 and talks about uh, defrauding or preoccupation with growing your wealth with no regard to the impact that that's having on those around you. James focuses not just on the impact that the accumulation of wealth can have on our own lives and the danger that it can have on our own souls, but he asks us to think about what impact does my financial plan have on the world around me? And here James goes after a particular category of people, of people who are wealthy. Because these people are just, and they exist in our day just like they did in the first century, is those people who are responsible as employers for providing for the needs of others. So these are wealthy landowners, people that are supposed to be paying others a salary. And so in these situations, they day laborers get to the end of the day, remember the parable that Jesus told about that, and they come and they expect to be paid for their day, for their day's work, because they're living literally hand to mouth. And instead of paying them, the employer says, you know what, I've just come across a big opportunity that I need to invest in, and so I can't pay you today, but I'm sure I'll get around to paying you tomorrow. And James says, these people, you're withholding what's due them. These people are living paycheck to paycheck, and you're just off investing in the next big thing. You are cheating people who need their daily bread. And James says, pay these people. Pay them today so they can feed their families today, if that's the agreement that you've made with them. And so for us, taking it out of the sort of agricultural concept, and construct for us, the question that we should ask is that if we're responsible for other people for helping them in paying them, what impact does your financial action and plan have on the lives of others? What action and actions do your business plans have on impact does your business plans have on the lives of others? Do any of the sophisticated financial tools that you and I have at our disposal create harm in the lives of others? Because sometimes we can get so focused on accumulating our own stuff that we actually don't think about the consequences of what it could be doing in order for us to accumulate stuff. Do you know what companies your mutual funds are invested in? And what those companies are doing out there in the world? Or are you just satisfied with whatever rate of return you're getting on your investments? If you're an employer, do you make sure people are paid on time? Do you pay them what they're worth? Or do you say, you know, I would love to pay you more, but we just need to, at this point, reinvest in the future of the business, which really means you're putting a bigger paycheck in your own pocket. 
Don't defraud people that are due their compensation because if you're in a position where you can make those decisions, you're in a position of power and you need to be careful. You need to use the resources that God has given you to speak up for and advance the cause of widows and orphans and those who are workers instead of just taking the route of saying, well, what would put the most money in my own pocket? James says we've got to be careful in these categories. A warning light should be going off in our lives if our sole focus is how much return on investment we can make, as opposed to what could the potential impact of this action be in the lives of others. A third warning light that James talks about is not a sin to be rich, but he says it is a sin to be uncaringly self-indulgent. It is a sin to live a lifestyle that reflects absolutely no concern for those in need. In verse 3, James talks about the fact that the wealth that you have accumulated will stand as a testimony against you, as evidence against you on the day of judgment. Is there a place in your financial plan for resourcing those who are in need? I like the way that 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin says it. He says this, God has not appointed gold to rust. He has not appointed garments to be eaten by moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them to be used as aids and to help in human life and help human life. Is there a place in your financial plan for those in need? What good is your money doing out there in the world? You see, it's very easy for us to design in North America a financial plan that is primarily about us and what we need from our financial plan. But what about others? Does your budget have room in it for you to be generous to those who are under-resourced? Because when we get focused on us, we start to ask very insular questions. Well, I need a better job, and I need this, and I need to renovate my house, and I need to do X or Y. But James asks us to just pause and consider is there margin in your life for those in need? This is what James is after in this verse. He says, if you and I have so much gold that we can't get around to polishing all of it before it gets rusty, and if we have so many clothes that we can't remember the last time that we wore something, and we have no intention to give that away, then, and we have no plan to resource those in need, then warning bells should be going off loudly in our lives. Douglas Moo in his commentary on the book of James says it this way, the hoarding of wealth is not wrong just because it demonstrates utterly false priorities. It's doubly sinful because it also deprives others of their very life. This is why James 4.17 says, Failing to do good is a sin. If you know that you can do good and that you are called by God to do good and you choose not to do it, that is a sin. And so this attitude actually in James 5 here is in keeping with the exact same thing he just finished telling us about in chapter 4. He talked at the end of chapter 4 about boasting in the future, but he talked about it related to planning. And he said, well, you know, it's presumptive and arrogant just to say this is what I'm going to do tomorrow he says, you've got to consider, is that what God wants you to do tomorrow? If you just say, oh, this is what I'm going to do, regardless of what God wants me to do, that's 
arrogance and presumption. He starts chapter 4, verse 13 by saying, look here. And then in verse 5, 1, he says the exact same thing. Look here, you. And so he's saying the same thing about wealth and wealth accumulation as he said about time and about looking to the future and planning. He's not against either of them. He's not against planning for the future, but there is a particular type of planning for the future that is offside. He's not against wealth and wealth accumulation, but there is a particular type of wealth accumulation that's offside. And this is in keeping with a long line of prophetic tradition in the book of Amos and in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, talks about you're in danger when the sum total of your life is consumed with your net worth. You're in danger when you're lining your own pockets at the expense of others. And when you have no regard for the poor and people who are under-resourced in your budget. But why are these things so dangerous? James helps us understand that. They're dangerous for the same reason that arrogant planning about the future is dangerous. Because it demonstrates misplaced trust. And this is the second logical question that we should ask from this text. Is it a sin to plan for the future? Like, should I just not go to my financial advisor and say, what do you think? James says, no. I think James would give the same answer to this as he gives to the same, uh, the first question. The answer is no, it's not a sin to plan for the future. But there are instances where a type of planning for the future can be detrimental. And James says, the type that is damaging to your soul is when you are planning for the future in a strictly temporal way. When you place your trust in the temporary, things that are temporary, that are here and now, with no regard for that which is eternal. You see, when we focus our planning often, um, we focus it on acquiring and managing that which is temporary. And it shows that we have misplaced priorities as it relates to what's really important in life. And that's why James tries to set the context in a right way for us. He reminds us about the coming of Jesus again to this earth. And he says that on the final day of judgment, you and I, every person in this room and every person who's ever lived, will stand before God and we will give an account of how we have lived our lives. And James says, if you have focused your life on acquisition at the expense of other realities, that will not go well for you on that day. It, your stuff will stand as a trophy against you, as evidence against you on that day of judgment, James says. We have cute little phrases, don't we, in North America that talk about this, you know, the person who dies with the most toys wins, and all of those kinds of things. But James would say, the person who dies with the most toys still dies, and the person who dies with the most toys will have a really big stack to account for and explain on the day of judgment. When we die, you and I will be held accountable for how we use the resources that God entrusted to us. Did we use them in such a way that reflected our values on things that are eternal and not just things 
that are temporal. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts these verses in his translation called The Message. He says this, a final word to you arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You will need buckets for the tears when the cash, when the crash comes upon you because your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth, but what you've actually piled up is judgment. You've looted the earth, you've lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. <laughs> Ouch. Again, it's not saying it's a sin to plan for the future. But the real question that James is asking us to consider is, what future are you planning for? What kind of future are you investing in? James would warn us that it is criminally ridiculous and irresponsible to accumulate wealth as if the world will go on forever. When the Bible clearly teaches that we are to live as people of faith in light of the return of Jesus. It's dangerous and inexcusable to focus our lives on only our lives and to focus our financial planning on only the things that we can get for ourselves and not actively consider or ask God, God, how do you want me to use the things that you have entrusted me with for your purposes and your plans, not only here on earth, but for all of eternity? That's what Jesus means when he says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Because if you and I fail to do that, all we'll have for all of our hard work at the end of lives is a big pile of stuff and a fatter than usual corpse. And that stinks in every sense of the word. So I think it's helpful for us. What James is trying to push into is asking us to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions questions and probing questions for reflection and response here today. And the first question that James wants us to ask is, has my money or my financial realities blinded me to my need for God? One of the most profound disadvantages that we have as North Americans is that we actually don't need to depend on God to give us our daily bread because we have most everything that we need. And maybe for the first time, you're beginning to realize that you need God. Maybe for you that's a fresh realization. We'd love to pray with you today about that. Maybe it's a growing or gnawing suspicion in your heart that you have actually not counted for God in your planning and in your world. You've been blinded by your, because of your stuff, for your need for God. And maybe for you it's a big step just to say to God, you know what, I actually acknowledge my need for you in my life. When you're doing that, the Bible calls that repentance. Saying, I need you, God. And that can rescue you from the misery of misplaced trust and stuff. The second question that James wants us to ask is about our contentness with our current financial situation. 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks about this and says, Keep your life free from the love 
of money. Here again, the scripture is clear. Money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so the way to release the hold that that can have on your lives is to be generous and be content with your current financial situation. And James warns us here that the more resources we have, the more danger we're in because there's a higher chance that we can actually be less content with the things that we have. Be content with what you have. Don't always be striving for more and more and more because that actually, if you are not content, it's actually saying to God, I don't believe that you will take care of me and provide for me. I'm reading right now through a book by Bill Hybels called Simplify. There's a number of us are reading through it. And I, I like how direct Hybels is in this section of his book. He says this, beginning today, can you commit to living joyfully within God's current provision for your life? Yes, God's provision will go up and down in different circumstances, but you will only know true financial peace when you learn to live joyfully beneath God's provision in every season of your life. Are you content with God's provision for you? Or are you scheming and planning and living in the future in an unhealthy way that James would say is offside? The third question to ask ourselves is, do our financial plans, do my financial plans demonstrate that I care for those in need? Is there a margin in your budget or a line in your budget somewhere that's going outside of people who are well resourced, that, are, that you're distributing to people who are in need? Are you directing resources to change the lives of others, not just upgrade your own life? Do your financial plans demonstrate your care for those in need? And then the last question James asks, is what plans for the future are you living by? Because so much of our world as North Americans is wrapped up in this notion of financial security. James says it's ultimately foolish and unwise to rely only on financial security to provide ultimate security. It doesn't work that way. If you're storing up wealth for this life and not allowing God to direct you or use your resources or your time for eternal purposes, but you're just investing in things that matter here and now and not investing in things that have eternal significance, then you're taking a very, very short-term view on your investments. Even if you're looking 60 years out or looking to the next generation or generations down the line, it's still too short of a view because James isn't against plans or planning for the future, but he is against plans that contain arrogant and improper assumptions. So what future are you living for? Remember, the question is not the amount. The question is the attitude that you have and the actions that you take about the resources that God has entrusted. And so I'm going to ask our worship and song team to come, and Ron and the team will lead us in a song of worship response. And as they do, I want you to ask God to just search your heart. Is there an area of conviction that God needs to bring in your life in this area? Maybe there's an action 
that you need to take. Write it down for yourself or make a note in your calendar about it. Set up an appointment with somebody. If you want to talk uh, with one of our prayer team about it, uh, Aaron Franson and Deb Jarvis will be available over at this side and Megan and I will be available over at this side and we would love to pray with you. And we'd love to celebrate with you. If there's something going on in your life that you want to thank God for and say, God, I thank you for your provision for me in this way, then we'd love to do that with you too. If there's a health concern or challenge that you have and you want to just say, I want to demonstrate my trust and confidence in God's provision for me in this way, then I invite you to come and pray with us now. Let's stand together as we sing and respond to what it is that God has sent to us in this prayer.